Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco and Lit Hub Radio, episode 202, Fantasy. Today, we launch a new format of the disco as we begin our genre season. Each episode of this season, we're going to dive deep into a particular literary genre, exploring what defines it, what makes it work or not work, interviewing authors, talking to fans, scholars, whoever can help us unlock what it is that makes a genre a genre. With our inaugural episode, we discover our long lost lineage, hop on a Pegasus and fly into the far reaches of fantasy. This is Literary (laughs) Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We are Todd, Julia and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Okay, I already have to in, uh, issue a correction. Off on a Pegasus. There's no a Pegasus. Pegasus oh. is the name. This is a great fun fact to start oh, with. I love Pegasus this. is the proper name of um, the flying horse from Greek mythology. Which what? is amazing. So there's no word for flying horse? Well, yeah, what's the word for flying horse? Flying fucking horse. I have, you know, I'm going to bring on our special guest because I think he might have uh, some thoughts on this. Uh, it wouldn't be a fantasy episode of Literary Disco unless we brought on the man who has had us read way too long fantasy books in the past and uh, rapey fantasy books. Uh, you may know him from his days on Boy Meets World with me, but he is also one of the most prolific voiceover actors in the world and a bona fide fantasy aficionado, self-proclaimed champion of all things nerdy. Please welcome the official Literary Disco fantasy correspondent, Will Friedle. I'm happy to be here, Ryder. Thank you for having me. Do you you have an opinion on this Pegasus unicorn debate? Well, it's not an opinion. Pegasus was was, uh, Perseus's horse. Thank you. Thank you, Will. So so Pegasus was gifted to Perseus so that Perseus could uh, defeat the Kraken when he had Medusa's head. So there is, uh, there are a line of Pegasuses. So for what, Pegasi? Actually, it would not be Pegasi because if it's apparent, and you you guys are are, are more learned in this, uh, but it's the octopuses octopi debate, <laughs> where if it is of Latin origin, oh God. Uh, if a word is of Latin origin, then it is 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 um, pluralized with an I. But if right. it is of Greek origin, it is the standard S's. So it is actually octopuses, not octopi, because it's a and Greek Pegasus word. Pegasus is Greek too. Finally, so, yeah. I have an ally. This is My incredible. God. What a day for me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, because for instance, to keep it nerdy, um, there is a, uh, a DC character called Shining Knight. That is a knight that actually was bestowed eternal life by Merlin. And he also has a flying horse, but his name is Winged Victory. So there are, all, are multiple horses that have that that are flying horses, but they are actually not. I mean, Pegasus is like saying it would be like saying every every man I meet is Todd. Right. Um, exactly. So, <laughs> Todd I yeah. or Toddises. Or Toddises, if he is not of Greek origin. Our goal today is to try and get at what it is that defines the genre of fantasy. And I I thought maybe, you know, because there's a lot of theories and ideas, um, but primarily, I guess, the, the, the biggest question that I have about fantasy, because everything is make believe, right? If you're writing a novel, uh, and it's Anna Karenina. It's still a make. It's a made-up story. It's a fantasy in the sense that it's made-up characters in a you know in a world that probably resembles ours, but is also has made-up places. Or uh, so why do we why do we say that there is a particular genre of fantasy? Mm. And the, to get at this question, I thought maybe I would throw out some books and you guys tell me why they are or are not fantasy. All okay. right. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Sounds good. Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Not mm. fantasy. Not fantasy. 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 Ooh. Already oh. some debate. Why not fantasy? Well, 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 there's I would I would argue that almost any genre, no matter what genre you have, has some level of world building, which is right. what fantasy is really known for, is the intricacy of the world building. So you could argue that any novel has that sure. uh, uh, type of world building. That being said, um, Moby Dick is based entirely on our world there is no magical elements whatsoever Mm -mm. there are no mythical creatures whatsoever because moby dick was actually based on a true story so there were whales that were attacking boats um so that takes it out of the fantasy genre in that again yes there is some world building but it is not 
any sort of magical system. That would be the first thing I would say is some sort of a magical system is some what makes sort of magical sense. system. All right. Yeah. Uh, the anthropomorphizing of the whale, giving it actual agency. Doesn't no, that no, no. doesn't no. that create? It's not like Jaws. It doesn't. The book doesn't go into the whale's point of view with an inner. Dialogue. But the whale. But the whale has agency. The whale's doing shit. Okay, like, as, as an animal. Animal. Okay. All right. I love Moby Dick. <laughs> the whale. We don't go into the whale's mind, and the whale yes. isn't making choices. It's mm. the book is about Ahab and the sailors interpreting normal whale behavior. And their anthropomorphization of the whale is part of the novel. Mm. Just anthropomorphizing an animal does not a fantasy make. Put that on a shirt. Next one. This is not necessarily, this isn't a book, but I thought this was a good one to throw out there. Star Wars. Yes and no. It's sci-fi fantasy. Ooh. We're getting complicated. See, I would say yes, fantasy. Yeah. Todd, you would say yes, fantasy. Yeah, there's there's a a guy with a walrus face. (laughs) I do not think Star Wars is fantasy. Okay. I think it is... I think it's in a fantasy setting. I reveal I don't care for Star Wars. Um, oh, so oh. <laughs> sci-fi fantasy is is a a genre unto itself in a way because what it does is it will combine the magical system of the Force right. with the technological system, right. but with yes. the technological system. So mm. that's why it is sci-fi fantasy, right? And it's there's destiny. There's a prince, or, or you know, there's the long lost co- child who finds out he's the son of the, the evil lord. It's a I mean, typical it's theory fantasy. Yeah. Okay. Here's another one. One hundred <laughs> years of solitude by Marquez. That's magical Fan- realism. It's magical realism. Well, that's why not fantasy. Because it's still our own world. It's just magical our old world. Happening. People float off into the sky and. This is not a strong argument, but bringing another element into the discussion. As far as I remember it. A hundred years of solitude stays pretty localized, right? Like there's not a lot of exploration, adventure. It's a normal family story, but with these additional elements and introduced. But those additional elements are magical. There is magic in the book. They are. All right. How about Kindred by Octavia Butler? Fantasy. Time travel story. Fantasy. Yeah. Never read it. Yeah. Not sci-fi because it's a great book. Well, you got to read it. It's time travel. Great book and also great graphic novel. All right, here's another one. Final final one, Life of Pi. No, no. It's someone losing their mind. All right, so to get at this question better than any of us, we thought we'd find an expert. Uh, Brandon Sanderson, is the most successful living fantasy writer. So he, he probably doesn't really need an introduction uh, with novels like Mistborn, which we covered in episode 47 of this show, uh, The Way of Kings, Oathbringer. Uh, Sanderson has created whole interconnected universes of epic proportions. Um, and beyond his original fantasies, he also took over the Wheel of Time series after the original author Robert Jordan passed away. He also is the what the largest Kickstarter campaign in history as of this moment, having raised $41 million to uh, publish, uh, I think three books. Uh, And he's also a professor. He teaches writing, specifically fantasy and sci-fi writing at Brigham Young University. So we thought he would be the perfect person to ask, what is fantasy? The really great fantasy novels mix in these real human stories, Mm -hmm. these stories about people. Uh, but they would do it in this fantastical uh, environment where I got adventure and, and wonder with my human stories. Like mm-hmm. Dragon's Bane mm-hmm. is the book that, that got me, I often say. That's the, that's the novel that the, my teacher gave me. Uh, it's a lesser known book by Barbara Hamley. And it's really about a woman having a midlife crisis. Well, it's so interesting um, because what I, what I feel like you're saying, you know, is that, that you actually connected fantasy actually allowed you to find more humanity than mm-hmm. old yeller yeah, or right. you know that the, the so-called more realistic books were actually less relatable to you well here's the thing my mom uh graduated first in her class in accounting in a year where she was the only woman in most of her accounting classes right uh right. she 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 was valedictorian she got offered a bunch of scholarships and she actually delayed her career um because she was pregnant with me uh, she eventually went on and became the accountant, uh, city accountant and all of these things. But when I was young, she stayed home with me. 
Um, and then my brother, which uh, as a young teen, you're like, well, of course she did. Look at me. I'm awesome. I deserve all this. Right. I deserve that. And yet I'm reading this book and I'm like, you could be a wizard woman. Leave the kids. Kids yeah. figure it out. Um, they can, they, 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 they'll eat. The, that Kids figure out how to eat. Go off and be a wizard. And I get done with this book and I'm like, this book is about my mom. Mm. Yeah. Um, kind of. Right. And I understand, I, I read a story about slaying a dragon um, and with all sorts of cool fantasy elements. And at the end, I understand my mother better. And that's fantasy. Wow. Yeah. That's what makes yeah. fantasy click. Yeah. I don't want to downplay the value of um, seeing yourself in the fiction you're reading, right? Mm -hmm. There, there, I mean, there are lots of reasons why having young people or uh, people of various backgrounds and uh, life experiences being in stories. I don't right. read stories, you know, it, it is important. I did pick up Sword of Shannara that summer and love mm. Sword of Shannara. And it basically has a young teenage boy as protagonist. I loved it, right? Same right. with, you know, uh, the old Eddings books and things like that. Right, um, right, yes. But at the same time, one of the reasons I read um, is to see through the eyes of someone different from myself and experience the world, a different version of the world. Um, and I always, I always say fantasy, fantasy is the most aspirational genre. Mm. Um, this is because we can, in fantasy, there, there are no limits. You can show anything. Um, and I always joke that it's called, it's, it's crunches for your imagination. It's ways to help you imagine <laughs> yes. a different um, and hopefully better world. Worse sometimes, because when you imagine something worse, it's a, it's a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but fantasy, uh, Terry Pratchett, to, not, to, to try to not mess up uh, a Terry Pratchett quote, which I will inevitably do. But he said something along the lines of, uh, fantasy is like riding a bicycle. Um, or riding a, an exercise bike, right? Um, it's not actually going to take you anywhere, but it's going to get you to where you can go to new places, right? Mm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to build up those muscles. And I'm sorry, uh, Serp Terry was always so pithy and I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but it's this concept, right? That what fantasy is there to do is to help you imagine a different world. And our world gets better because people imagine a different world right mm -hmm. uh before people yeah. flew people were imagining uh that we right. could fly right. uh it you, you need to imagine things before the world can change well so, so i'm curious about what you're saying brandon because you know a lot of a lot of what you're you're, you're it makes so much sense to me um and, but it also has a lot to do with the, the world building aspect of mm. fantasy and i'm curious about the um the sort of plot uh, like requirements of a fan are there plot requirements to the fantasy genre or is it like you said you know it sort of could become a midlife crisis story set in the fantasy world how how do you approach it do you think of fantasy as a as a genre of like a with a plot built in or a certain set of plots built in or do you think of it as more like a sandbox that you play in that's an excellent question so i think more like the second uh mm -hmm. but um, we have this, the word genres actually kind of a terrible word for describing <laughs> things because we ascribe like three different things to the word genre. Uh, when I took my genre class in college, the genres were play, prose, and creative nonfiction. Right? <laughs> Those were the three genres that right. they were discussing on an academic level. Uh, we don't even talk of it that way. We say fantasy, science fiction, which are also genres. But the thing about it is fantasy you can use, okay, what is a fantasy? You can do the plot structure style of fantasy and say, all right, fantasy is often either one of three things. It's a portal fantasy, it's a, um, an epic fantasy, or it's a, um, it's a, a low fantasy, right? Um, and those are your three basic archetypes um, of fantasies. Harry Potter, portal fantasy, kid uh, or adult falls through a portal. Epic fantasy, state of the world, lots of characters, often with a quest narrative, but not always. And then low fantasy, I, I'm a big strong dude and I'm gonna go kill this wizard, um, which eventually morphed <laughs> into the Michael Moorcock, Elric, um, and even kind of the um, split off a little bit into urban fantasy. The urban fantasy was mostly horror with dib dabbling. You can go into all these sorts of things. Right. Um, but right, right. fantasy is also just the genre where um, the impossible 
is treated as possible. Where mm-hmm. science fiction is the implausible is made, you know, we, we take what we think might be able to happen and bring it forward. Fantasy is, no, this is impossible. I understand it's impossible. We're all gonna pretend for a while that it's uh, possible and we're gonna tell a story. Um, and that's how I view fantasy. Um, mm. Under that, as long as you think you're telling fiction, if you'd put something impossible in, you, you're under our umbrella. Uh, so that means, you know, Hamlet is fantasy, right? Right. Um, right, right whether right. Beowulf is fantasy or not is up for a debate, right? But the Odyssey is probably fantasy. Yeah. People the Tempest probably for sure that, is fantasy. The Tempest um, is fantasy, as, right? As mm-hmm. being fiction, right? Um, and and so it's like. What is fantasy? Is it the set of genre tropes? Um, is it the the uh, storytelling genre of the imagination where anything can happen? Um, is it you know something else? And that's that's why genre as a, as a word is hard to define. Um, I don't look at fantasy bringing any specific plots. Mm. I think I often say this. I have to say, why wouldn't you write fantasy? We can do anything you can do in any other genre. Right. We we have literary fiction um, as as powerful as the as any literary piece. Right. We've got Hamlet, greatest work in English language. Right. Um, we've got all kinds of uh, imaginative, powerful Ursula Le Guin and all of these people um, who, who have a great literary tradition. Or you can do romance as uh, as powerful mm-hmm. as any uh, romance story. You can do a mystery. You can do a detective story. This is what Harry Dresden is. Mm-hmm. Plus, you can have dragons. So why wouldn't you? Why <laughs> would you write anything else? I love this. I think I can see writers like grinning because you're answering all of his questions about fantasy so expertly. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, when I think about fantasy as sort or from a layperson's point of view, it let's talk about character tropes. You know, like the characters drive not only the character arcs, but the types of characters that we return to again and again. Um, so yeah, tell us why, why dragons, why elves, why wizards, you know, what's so magical. And I mean that in a more human way, not in a literal magical way. What's so magical (laughs) about these that we are coming back to them as, as such strong archetypes. Yeah. So, um, I would make the argument that that is definitely part of fantasy. Um, but Mm -hmm. let, let me, let me step you through it. Um, I feel one of the driving features of fantasy is a sense of wonder. Um, Mm -hmm. Every genre Mm -hmm. is seeking to create an emotional response in the reader, particularly fiction, uh, fiction genres. Um, And different emotional responses, a good book is going to have a wide variety of them, right? You're going to be doing all sorts of things. But fantasy's like key component is this sense of wonder. It's a sense of exploration. It's a sense of going somewhere new. And that creates an interesting sort of tension in fantasy in that if you do the same thing too many times, the readership um, actually kind of stops feeling that sense of wonder. Um, Stale wonder. Yeah. yeah, Stale wonder bread. (laughs) (laughs) You see this. um, This is me kind of I'm sharing it, but the late 90s got hit with this. Um, so what happened, this is my armchair history of fantasy. Um, fantasy was really the two genre, the two types of fantasy, portal fantasy and, uh, and low fantasy, as we now call it, until Tolkien came along and really added a third genre or a third subgenre to fantasy with epic fantasy. And then he went and died on us after only <laughs> releasing a couple of books Bastard. and the entire publishing industry changed to be like what is this you want to know where uh sort of shannara came from it's basically De- lester del rey being like we need more of this who can write this mm-hmm. uh with david wow. eddings they literally yeah. went to him and said stop writing thrillers take this tolkien book write something like this right um, right and the late 70s saw star wars come which is a science fantasy and a sudden boom of we need to do this and the 80s and early 90s was spent very much in tolkien's shadow just Mm -hmm. basically replicating what Tolkien did. Um, And because of that, you end up with the late 90s, there was a big exodus from epic fantasy. People were getting bored of it. Uh, They were still reading the authors that they were enjoying, but they were either um, reading George R. R. Martin, who was like, Mm -hmm. okay, we're done with, you know, we're going to kill the epic fantasy tropes one at a time on right. purpose. <laughs> right. We're going to chop their heads off. Yeah. Uh, right. It's an epic fantasy setting with a low fantasy uh, sort of mindset, uh, which really, right, really right. mixes the two subgenres. 
Um, and then Harry Potter came along and was just the sense of wonder and whimsy and just sucked all the air out of the room. And you'll find a number of high profile epic fantasy launches in the late 90s and just just flopped. And everyone yeah. is flocking to where the sense of wonder was more, um, more distinctive, more, more fresh. Um, and I think this was teaching us fantasy isn't about elves and orcs. Though there are mm -hmm. great stories even being written today about elves and orcs, and some people sure. that's what they're looking for, and that's totally fine. I'm not saying there's no moral judgment there, but the 2000s, the last 20 years, have taught us that fantasy is not about those uh, those tropes. It is about solid, interesting characters and worlds with a lot of imagination mm -hmm. and if you don't shake that up and keep presenting new styles of storytelling then this genre is going to get stale and it will die real fast all the best fantasy is pulling from all different genres mm -hmm. um like if you pick up an epic fantasy that i write i am deliberately saying all right here's what i'm learning from the romance genre and using here's what i'm learning from the detective uh genre and using uh, here's what I'm learning from literary fiction and using. Uh, mm. I'm trying to pull all of that together to make a 4,000 word epic that is basically a bunch of smaller novels stapled together uh, mm -hmm. and interwoven. Mm. That's so interesting. So in, in, the, in that instance, do you find the genre uh, helpful as a sort of set of, of things to work with or even against? Yes, absolutely. Like yeah. my, my first not my first novel, but my breakout was Mistborn. And Mistborn's premise is, what if the Dark Lord won? What if mm -hmm. Frodo got to the end of Lord of the Rings and Sauron said, hey, uh, thanks for bringing my ring back. <laughs> right. um, I've been looking for that. Right. Uh, now I can take over the world, right? right. Like, that's the premise. What if the Dark Lord won and a gang of thieves were going to rob him? So uh, it's a conscious so, reaction to yeah. an existing... Right. right. right? Mm -hmm. It's got Cliche. that modernist right. take of a reaction against the tropes. And then it's mixing in, like I just said. It, it takes a heist narrative and it mixes mm -hmm. it in. Mixes it in. And so it's just me borrowing saying, wow, I love high stories. Why are there no fantasy high stories? Well, yeah. I'm going to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. so. right. And there well, are plenty of them. Lies of Loch Lamora is an even more heisty because Mistborn turns into an epic fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, it's a stealth epic fantasy. Whereas Liza Lockmore is just a true heist uh, in fantasy form. So thank you thank so, you much, so Brandon. much, Brandon. Really Brandon. appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, you take care. All right, right you take too, care, Brandon. Hey guys, uh, FYI, Brandon Sanderson knows what he's talking about. Pretty smart. <laughs> Pretty, pretty smart. That was yep. good time. It's always so great when somebody uh, can walk the walk and talk the talk. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like for, for somebody to be a professional, successful writer of his caliber, and then, you know, not only be able to do it, but then to theorize about it and to know the history of it. I just love that. I'm curious about this for you, Will, because you are our fantasy correspondent. You read a lot of it. You're acting in it. I presume that you've read a good sum of you know, your standard literary fiction as well over the course of your life. What does fantasy fiction give you that crime fiction or literary fiction or any other kind of fiction does Romance. not? <laughs> Romance, yeah. Well, again, I, I said jokingly before that if, if it's not book one of 20, I'm not interested. And that's mm -hmm. absolutely one of the things it gives you that most literature doesn't, which is a longevity you can't find anywhere else. You absolutely. immerse yourself in these worlds for, I mean, again, when, when, when you started reading, you mentioned The Wheel of Time, Ryder. When you started reading The Wheel of Time, the first book came out in like 1982. The last one that Brandon did, and I could be wrong with those years, it's somewhere in the 80s. Um, the last one that Brandon wrote to finish the series came out in like 2012 or 2015. I mean, you will immerse yourself in these worlds for decades at times. Um, so these are characters that you are with for long periods of time as the world is unfolding before you it's there's an anticipation to fantasy that you don't necessarily get with with other um uh, other genres where you're just you can't wait for the next one to come yeah. out that's so true and we haven't talked about that at all yet like i have gone out of my way to be like okay what's a series of books that i'm going to spend months in mm -hmm. rather than okay this book was great it took me a weekend or you know a couple weeks and now i move on with my life like 
what is an alternate reality I can regularly escape to? And I remember feeling that way when I started reading Game of Thrones, like, okay, yep. this is great. This is going to be like a year of me thinking about these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because well, it's, the original, I, it's original binge watching. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that this, this speaks to something about fantasy in particular too. It's, it's almost as if a sustained commitment to the fake reality Mm-hmm. Is, is a requirement of the fact that like the fantasy is going out on a limb further than any other genre, right? It's saying we're not only going to make up uh, a, a set of characters, we're going to make up an entire world and we're going to make up all these rules for that world and all the, the ways that, you know, physics work in this world. Fantasy requires more participation, more commitment than any mm-hmm. other genre. And I mean, to that point, I wanted to talk about D&D because uh, Dungeons and Dragons is you know, to me, how I discovered fantasy, because I started by playing Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. I know, Todd, you played Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. as a kid. And Will, you didn't as a kid, but now you play Dungeons and Dragons, right? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, so he I, came I, through I, the I, fantasy novel side, whereas I feel like you and I, Todd, we we started with the, the yeah. game first. So, you, so you've got your history of reading all of these books that you're bringing to playing D&D, whereas D&D was my entry drug. Oh, that's so interesting. See, there that's... you go, yeah. The, you know, you mentioned how uh, specific the worlds get. My favorite uh, fantasy series growing up was called um, the, the Belgariad and Melorian series written by David and Lee Eddings. It was really David Eddings, but it's his wife, Lee, is finally getting the credit she deserves for also helping. And between the first five books, the second five books, and then the two after books, Paul Guerra the Sorceress and Belgarath the Sorcerer. So many books. Jesus. Uh, you've got 12 <laughs> books. Um, that were done over a span of years, but then they came out with something called the Riven Codex. And what the Riven Codex was, was essentially, it was David Eddings explaining how he created the world and how intricate it got. And it, so there's different species, whether it be Sendar's Rivens, Telnadrans, uh, the Drasnians, uh, um, I mean, 15 of them. And he broke down every country by uh, race, size, religion, um, currency, what that currency was worth compared to a currency in another world. I mean, it was just the entire world <laughs> up to the crazy. economic system yeah. That's was crazy. written out. So well, you see when all of this started with him drawing a picture on a napkin and going, this is my world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, they, this is, this is a, a true fantasy writer. It's that intricate because if a tell if if a sendar meets a riven and they have to exchange money they have to know what that exchange rate is which means that david eddings needs to know what that exchange rate is it's crazy that's well, I mean, crazy. I think this does go back to Tolkien, in, in, like even the basic sense. Like he included a map at the beginning of the book, right? Like Lord of the Rings opens with that little hand-drawn map, and in a weird way, it's like a it's like a, a, a form of detail and authenticity that makes you go like, oh, it, it creates a level of authenticity. Right. I think more That's than right. anything else. Right. Well, one of my markers is like if I open a book and there's a like a five-page list of people that I have to know what you know, like what category they're in right. or what line- lineage Lockstone. they're in. I'm like, okay, I, I see the level of commitment and I'm in. <laughs> uh, okay, I, the last, the, the, the last Wheel of Time book, uh, the one, the, the final one that wraps everything up that Brandon, it was the second or third one that he wrote. The, the prologue was 110 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> the prologue. You know, there are people that don't read prologue, which is really weird to me. Like, cause if you call it chapter one, no one would have a problem. Yeah. yeah, but it's, they are, they, and so to get back to what you're talking about with D&D, the, the, it, it, it sounds so ridiculous, but to even bring it back to acting, mm-hmm. you know that if you open a book and uh, if you know they believe it, you believe it. Right. So when they're that into the world they're giving you, like when an actor is that into the role, they believe it, so you do. It's the same thing with fantasy. Like, like you said, like Todd said, you can see the commitment, or Julia said, you can see the commitment where it's like, this is a world that is important. And this person for, you know, no hyperbole lived in this world while they were writing it. And right. now they're sharing it with us. And so that is a wonderful, gorgeous thing. Well, and, and, and you get that with D&D. Julia, have you ever played D&D? Yeah. No, I haven't. So, Will, I, I am a professional improviser. And I, I ha- I've never mentioned this to you guys, actually, but I also do an improv fantasy show. Um, 
called The King in the North. Um, and it's really fun, but I've never played D&D. So I've performed improvised fantasy, but I've never been in a room where there's like no audience and you're doing D&D. So now you explain to me <laughs> what the hell is D&D, how it works. <laughs> and yeah, why is it so, why is it as huge as it is? So how does D&D, D&D broken down to its most basic essence is improv with consequence. Yeah. It is a dice-based role-playing game, is, is D&D at its most basic. You will sit with a DM or dungeon master or GM, depending on the game, game master, who will sit with you and break down a character. You create a character based on a book. You get a, a, a guide, a dungeon master guide is for the dungeon master, and you get a player's guide, uh, and you go through every little step from what race you want to be, what class you want to be, classes, you know, you want to be a fighter, you want to be a paladin, you want to be a wizard. You then roll dice depending on your attributes. Then the story takes on a life of its own and you are weaving your characters in with the other players around you and characters are falling in love. They're fighting each other. And when I say it's with consequence, you're a meat bag when you start the game. You, you have no sure. power, your hit points are at nothing. So it's like, oh, you meet a, a, you know, a horse walking down the street, he bumps into you, you're dead. So it's like, <laughs> you, you've got to make sure that you keep your character alive long enough to grow into the character you could be and you level up. And it just, it is the most wonderful, amazing way to spend, let's say, four to 30 hours on a weekend. Because <laughs> um, the games are very long, very intricate, but you look down and you're like, how have we been here for 12 hours? And you don't care. In a lot of ways, it's like living inside of your favorite fantasy novel, you know, mm. or not even your favorite. It's like living inside a fantasy novel with fellow writers. You know, you're all right. writing yeah. it together. So we're really curious about all of these questions about D&D uh, as a shared fantasy experience and committing to it. And since Todd and I hadn't played for so many years, we thought we'd find someone who knows more than us. Kate Welch is a professional dungeon master and professional D&D player. She's been a cast member of uh, D&D campaigns that have aired live, including the D&D show Acquisitions Incorporated. And she also worked at Wizards of the Coast as part of the official team that writes and designs Dungeons and Dragons campaigns. So nice. we talked to her about what it means to write D&D. The whole D&D team was about 25 people. It's almost like running a, like a TV show, you know? Yeah, or a video game. Or a video about. game, yeah. Yeah, it's very, that's super interesting. Um, and so what you're writing is essentially a guide for a dungeon master to sort of launch their own version of the story, correct? Yeah. And one of the things that we try to convey really strongly, especially with fifth edition, is we're writing, we we give you a a, a guidebook, like a map to a place mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and places that you can go, things that you can discover. And some dungeon masters, although I think it's a minority, take that as the Bible. Like we are going to do exactly what's in this book. Mm. And because that's the published adventure. Right. And that's what I think that, you know, the adventurers league style gaming, where it's like, we're, we're all doing this almost, almost um, as a contiguous competitive thing where we're all tracking our resources over time. Oh, I think they're, they're right, a lot right. more, they're a lot more stringent about it, but the vast majority of dungeon masters, at least I hope take what we wrote in those books and use it as a guide, a, a suggestion, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can, you can flip through, you can see the layout. Okay, I, gotta, I, I see what they're going for here. I read about what's going on. I think about my party and I make changes that I know will interest them. Right. That's what's so fascinating to me too about DMing. It's like, you have to, you have to, uh, you know, build the world, but then also improv within it. Like right. you have to respond to the choices your characters your, your, you, your players make, right? You have to be the doctor and the patient at the same time. <laughs> a good dungeon master is, is ready to pivot 
you know, is, is okay. My group is going in a totally different direction. This is classic. Like, Oh, my group ruined my plans for me. I'm like, Oh, now it's going to get interesting. The fact that now we're, now we're getting to a thing that I had no idea we were going to do. That's when it gets exciting for me. That's when I get to improvise and I get to be a part of the game. Now it's not just me like reciting my great novel that I've written for you all to sit and listen to (laughs) my fan service. Um, but, but, uh, be actually being able to be, like you said, writer, a, 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 uh, a performer and a writer on this is right. it's just it's the best when does it go wrong when does it go bad um you know in my experience the only bad moments that have happened in Dungeons and Dragons are ones where the players just were not aboard the train right. there right. there has to be a good faith I I say this a lot there's, there's so much vulnerability in creativity and so much, uh, multiply that by a factor for the vulnerability that comes in improvising. Right. So when you are exposing your creativity in an improvisational setting, you're just like ripping your organs out for everybody to see. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and so as a dungeon master, it's a very, very vulnerable place to be because mm. what if you're always thinking like, what if this thing that I am going to do with my players, what if they think it's stupid? You know, right. what if I say, what if I say something that offends someone, whatever, it's just like all of the anxieties that are going on in your brain. So when a player is also feeling like they, usually it's, it's a player who doesn't feel like they can be vulnerable back. Right. Uh, they're not comfortable. And so they're, they just don't, they don't rip open their chest and show you their heart. Like they're, right, they are right. too, they're too protected. Right. Um, and so I, you know, there, there's a feeling of like, I'm, I'm not going to be as nerdy, as vulnerable as this person is because I, I'm afraid. And so right. those moments have happened with me. Um, and that, I mean, still that though, because game. I, I guess I always just assume like if you're in it to the point where you have you DMing for them, like they are, they're in it, right? Like they, they want that sense of play. They want to be in that world, but I guess social situations make anyone clam up or, mm-hmm. you know, you're bored or whatever it might be. Yeah. So it must happen less now, right, than it did ten years ago for you, generally speaking. I, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> uh, I haven't played that much, to be honest. Like, especially not as an adult. But uh, I am very uncomfortable speaking as my character. I still do everything. Right. I paraphrase everything. So, I'm like, right. I'm gonna go up to the barkeep right. and I'm gonna say. So I'm like narrating my action as opposed to like barkeep. I'll have, you know, like, I don't, I don't do that thing. Can't that's amazing. Do that. <laughs> you do it, right? I mean, that's what you do as, right. a, as yeah. a DM. You I, do accents I, and voices. You get it. I started using an English accent. I don't know why. You can't, can't commit. <laughs> I couldn't commit. It's so funny. But so you commit, you, you commit and you expect a, a, a level of commitment from your players. That, right. Yes, I commit. Uh, I do find I am also deeply self-conscious. Like it's very hard for me to play in a serious game. So my brand as a defense mechanism is comedy. Right. I, my games are um, always really, really silly. And I, I'm like, whatever bullshit you want to try, like I'm going to enable it because that is what, that is what I want out of my D and D games is people being like, can I try this stupid thing? And I'm like, absolutely. You can try that. Let's roll right. some dice. Right. Um, I'm, I'm trying never to be the dungeon master that says, no, I, I want everybody to have a good time. But my defense mechanism for like getting into character is accents, uh, because they make people laugh. I'm good yeah. at some of them and I'm, mo- I'm horrible at most of them, yeah. but they help, <laughs> they help me, <laughs> they help me roll the, the two, the two accents I can do. And I have to like get my trigger phrase going um for i can do a kiwi accent uh my trigger phrase is that's nice and now i can speak in a new zealand accent <laughs> that's great. Uh, oh, wow. i'll use i'll use quite a bit in my in my games um and then the that's other one great. i can do it i can do a, pre- a pretty decent scottish accent uh-huh. and uh <laughs> that's great <laughs> a lot of my characters also i could do a brooklyn act like i i just right. do whatever whatever accent like suddenly the volume of my voice doubles and and everyone starts laughing and I can tell my characters apart because I remember this is the guy with the Brooklyn accent um so that's I but all of that's a great way of doing it yeah yeah because it's (laughs) It's all hiding that's so cool (laughs) yes when we're kids we play so unselfconsciously right you know right like we don't care what we look like we don't care who sees us it's a learned thing for us to become ashamed of that kind of vulnerability in play and so as you get older you realize like somebody might make fun of me for this 
And so, and mm-hmm. cause you've probably got made fun of at some point, somebody made fun of you for doing something that was a genuine expression of yourself. You build that wall right. yeah. and then it happens again, you build a thicker wall. And so when you get to be an adult, you realize playing pretend is something that's just for children because someone told yeah. me that once and I've never mm-hmm. forgotten it because it hurts so badly. Right. Um, and it's, I, I think one of the reasons like people love acting is because everyone there expects you to play pretend you're, you are supposed to like, you're right. encouraged to, and that's part of who we are as human beings. I really like there's their children play. They, they play pretend. They, they yeah. know to do that from, yeah. from as an instinct. Yeah. And there's a part of me too. And this is an utterly unscientific theory, but I think that it's part of who we were as primitive beings, like before society became civilization, that the idea of playing pretend together was how we told stories and taught lessons and engaged our brains because something happens to you guys when, when, when I play in a game, I've just finished my, like a five-year campaign that I was engaged in. I'm Um, sorry, did you say five years? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. With wow. the same characters going through. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh that's, my that's, God. Like, yeah. that's, that's like crazy. a lifetime of experiences and shared journeys. And you were Five doing years. this or actor, you were playing. Oh, I was, I was a player. I was a player. Oh, so um, great. But my dudes, there are, there are people I've met who've played in the same campaign for 40 years. So right. like five, oh yeah, God. five years, five years. I'm like, yeah, five years is great. But like, I've met some people. So, so anyway, after c- completing this campaign, I went from, I was like friends with one of the people that I was playing with. I didn't really know the rest of them. Um, I went from that to like, I will kill for you. I, <laughs> I bake them birthday cakes. You've I, been I wars together. Yeah. You've been you, you, wars you together. for each other. Like, <laughs> exactly. So exactly. Yeah. There's it's, it's, it's real. It's real yeah. to you. There's like, we all have this shared set of memories wow. of things yeah. that only we know about having been there, but we remember them like they're real. And there's, God, there is just so something cool. really interesting psychologically. I always, I, I like to bring this back to the actual anatomy of our, of our brains and like how we evolve. Like, why is this so sticky? Why does, why does this appeal? Why does it happen that I remember everything vividly that we only collectively imagined? And that's why I'm like, there must be something that we evolved to do that is emulated by the playing of Dungeons and Dragons. That is like, I remember those things because it's important for me to be able to survive because I created this world with people and imagined things that could happen and might serve me later, you know? It's it's sort of um, shared altruism, you know, which is is the creation of the nuclear family. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, um, there's a a great great book by Helen Fisher uh, that talks about shared altruism amongst, uh, we're going to get deep here, amongst the australopithecines um, that really really shows (laughs) like how primitive man developed the nuclear family. Um, Because also metaphor creates empathy. When you can compare other things to the things and create other things to show an example of what life could be like, that creates a natural form of empathy. So I, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're I absolutely think, right. I think, sure, yeah. I mean, storytelling is just the most essential, you know, it's, it's the way we remember things. It's how we, you know, it's the way humans, we just are such social animals. And I think you're right. Like D and D is, it, it, there's something primal about it. Yeah. There's something so effective about it. Uh, it's amazing. It actually took us so long into the 20th century to sort of develop a version, you know, to develop the game. Or did it? This episode, you know, our, our focus is, is on the the notion of genre and, and then, and specifically fantasy. And I guess like, I'm wondering if you have any idea why, like, because you could role play anything, right. And people do, there are other games, there's cyberpunk games, there's vampire, there's werewolf there, you know, but but D&D is enduring. It's like the, that sort of high fantasy, that epic, you know, Tolkien inspired world is kind of the still the most popular. Why do you think that is? Why, why is it? Why do we role play fantasy as opposed to other types of people? Well, uh, specifically, uh, Tolkien is an excellent, I think, um, pin to, to put in it. Because when you talk about werewolf and vampire, those are all fantasy. Right. But there's a difference between modern fantasy, dystopian, like cyberpunk type fantasy, right. and a completely like otherworldly, semi-utopian place mm. where beautiful things 
occur and, mm. and magic is real. Um, that is, I think, allows you to completely escape who you actually are in, in totality, where right. you are, who you are, everything is different. And there is, I think, I think escape is a, is a huge deal in, especially in the, the more, the more stress we're under as people, the more populated our world gets, I think escape is, becomes increasingly important. So a world in which you can totally escape and Tolkien, I mean, the, the unabashedly D and D was, was ripped off so many totally, things. Yeah. Right. It's, right. It was just like, it was obviously a game where like, I want to pretend to be in middle earth. Yeah. Um, like they had to call, they only call halflings halflings because they were called they hobbits early on. And right. yeah, there was some lawsuit action. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, like there, I think that Tolkien really tapped into something too. And, and I'm sure there's, there's thousands of, of thought pieces written about what it is about Tolkien that, that really got people. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's, there is just, there is this world of, of, of mystery and in a, in a, in modern society, particularly in the West, we are, we are often devoid of magic. Like magic mm, is not yeah. something that enters our day to day, but there's still a spiritual pull toward the mystical that, that humans just can't deny whether like, I know, I know plenty of atheists who love playing magical magic wielding characters in D and D there's still a, a, a desire for there to be something that isn't quite understood all the way, something right. that gives you power beyond what your boring meat sock of a human body is able to, <laughs> to accomplish. That's, that's so well put, you know, yeah. does the nature of the, the game require a sort of fantasy storyline you know a, a journey uh or, or is all of that up for grabs and you kind of take it you know as it comes and go wherever the, the does the genre kind of run with the players or is it set ahead of time i guess is a question yeah there's it's very much it very much runs with the players it's something that yeah. i like to ascertain in like a session zero when we were talking about like who are who are our characters what mm -hmm. kind of chemistry are we going to have together what kind of game do we want to run mm -hmm. and you can customize every single bit of this to the group that, that's playing maybe they really want to do a lot of heavy hitting combo or uh, combat in dungeons great now no that's the kind of game that you're going to run right. i personally love to run games that have very little combat for a number of reasons that we don't have time to get into but the main one is that um i just I don't love combat in in D and D, yeah. so I like that. There's so many other things that you can be good at, like mm. what and, and and kind of to your point earlier, Todd, when you were talking about your D and D game, how it's like when people are killing the orc, everybody else is like, yeah, fucking kill that orc. Right. That's right. every game. Every, it's very easy to disengage. So uh, that's my personal preference. I'll run whatever the the group wants. But when it comes to the the through line of story, I do think that there's one that I tend to gravitate toward. That is. A tried and true classic works every time in any medium, which is the chosen one story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it's like all of the best stories that have echoed throughout the years. There's always an aspect of chosen one. And it, it, it relates to that escapism and that fantastical nature of the genre of like, ooh, what if I was the chosen one? Right. That'd be amazing. So yep. does that mean yep. you end up sort of insinuating pretty early on that somebody within the party is, is chosen for a destiny and then you're going to find out what that is? You know, I like everybody to be the chosen because the chosen one doesn't have to be one person. Right. I think gotcha. that the chosen, the chosen one can be a group. And so yeah. what I like to insinuate and start hinting at as soon as possible is that whatever is happening is happening because it's this group of people. There's right. something that each of you is bringing to That's this so that is cool. essential. Right. Yeah. It's whatever. destiny, and right? It's yeah. like it's the destiny. notion of destiny, yeah. right? Exactly, exactly. But and destiny has to be fulfilled by this combination of people. And so when I start, do I know what that is? Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> like I don't I don't know. I don't know what the chosen one story is going to turn out to be, but the more I see these players play, the more I find out about their characters, the more we all discover together and then an idea will come to me. And I'm like, right. ooh, maybe this could be it. And then you start steering them toward that. Like that's one of the best, the best things about being a dungeon master is like, I have no idea where this is going when I start. <laughs> yeah. And I'll figure it out as we go, just like the rest of the group will. And, and right. being able to trust in yourself and in your own creativity and and know that whatever's gonna happen is going to be for the sake of the story and is, is going to be memorable.
Well, that was awesome. You know, I really want to pick up on what she talked about at the end there with this whole notion of the chosen one, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, I feel like, yeah, when you're playing D&D &D and you have like all these different ideas of like, you know, one person's going to want to make it a funny campaign. Another person wants to just go kill people. And it, and like a way to sort of take all the strands of, of choices that people are making and tie them all together and make it feel like a coherent fantasy is that all of this was destined, right? Like all of this goes back to a sort of Pre preordained story. And I mean, this is going back to like why I think Star Wars is fantasies because there's always mm -hmm. the sense of like, and this was meant to happen. And I feel like, and Will, Will, you should, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like, isn't that a defining feature of fantasy? It, it, well, sure. I mean, the hero's journey will always be one of the places that you start. It's, it's you know, no one wants to play D&D &D if it's about five people where nothing happens to them because they nobody cares and they don't go anywhere. Right. I know. But I, I'm because you could be a hero by breaking rules and and changing the world, sure. you know, but but I'm talking about specifically, oh, you were destined to become the king sure. or destined the, the, to be the, the one who yeah. kills the king or whatever. Yeah. The predestined thing is always you. It's the, it's constantly the child born with the mark. That means something. Right. The, exactly. Or the, you have half a medallion and you've got to go find who had the other half a medallion. There's something where your your life has already been chosen for greatness, but you now have to walk the path of it. Yes, of course, right. that's. That is very, and, and one of the things I like to say is, while that may be true, that doesn't change the fact that some people do that very well and some people do that very poorly. Right. So while you may have, I mean, I always say, the, at the end of the day, the blues is three chords. Um, it's how you play the blues that makes you a great blues musician or a terrible blues musician. Right. So, right. you know, fantasy may start with those same three chords, but Brandon Sanderson is Brandon Sanderson because he writes like Brandon Sanderson right. Um, right. and right. creates worlds and magical systems that are marvelous where other people um, will take those same, Hey, you're predestined to grab the sword because your fingers marked in the way. And it's just a bad Super story. Predictable. Sure. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Predictable. And, and it's, it's, or just not well-written or it's, I mean, you get even the things that we're going to start, you said star Wars, you get, you know, when they, they did the first star Wars uh, of the, of the, <laughs> the, the first series. star Wars of the second reboot episode, what? Uh, seven. seven. Yeah. And, and it came out and, and, um, what was her name? Ridley, uh, I forget her name, but the the the, the lead Ridley. character, yeah, Ray, who played Ray, who played Ray. Ray. Everyone hated that she was a Mary Sue because yes, her life might have been determined, but the thing people loved about Luke Skywalker was the fact that he was bad at lots of things when we right. started. He was whiny. He couldn't really fly well. He was like the greatest American hero. He was like, right. I don't but, know what to do with this suit. <laughs> but that's why you loved him. Whereas right. she did everything perfect the first time she touched it, and people hated it. So right. it's like, hey, you took the same exact story and yours is bad and theirs is good. Okay, well, why? And that's so, so that's one of the reasons why. And, and it's, again, it goes back to, we keep talking about what makes a fantasy and the, it, you don't have to be predestined for greatness, but you know, it certainly helps. So you know, one, one thing I was wondering too, is like, like, it seems like fantasy requires like a reason for chaos. Whereas crime fiction, for instance, has often has someone who comes in and solves the chaos fixes the chaos fixes yeah. the mm -hmm. chaos so like oh the reason we're in chaos is that we're looking for the one the reason that we're in chaos is that the boy with the mark has not been discovered um and that sort of reminds me of like oh well the reason that there's gay people is that christ is coming back and he will fight <laughs> the gay people or you know whatever whatever religious canard is out there at any given time <laughs> that is dependent on the return of Christ. Yeah, um, so there's definitely something biblical and Arthurian about a lot of these things. Those are obviously two major branches. Um, sure. But <laughs> I'm so sorry to you three. This gets to exactly why I am not a big Star Wars fan because, and I, I let's get away from this and talk about some other series because it's something that permeates mm. fantasy, which is, destiny is from blood and from family and like yes. star wars irritates me and that like the only real twist is who's your daddy um <laughs> like how many times can you do that twist um and apparently nine nine yeah <laughs> nine, nine but i think that's that's really heavy for a lot of people you know and and maybe not a great way it's like yeah no matter what you do 
whoever your parents were, whoever your great, great grandparents were, like, that's who you're going to be. Well, but this, um, it, it goes back to the religious point, right? Like right. there, yeah. it, because Jesus Christ, who's your daddy, right? Like, right. I mean, we're, we're getting to the heart. It's like the notion of, of, of fantasy, fantasy does seem like it's almost like, um, like a human, like there's a, a religiosity built into the human brain, right? This right. impulse for storytelling that is rule breaking, like we're going to break the reality of the world. So like, that's not just a tree. That's a tree that means something. That's right. not just a regular river. That's a river that means something. And I'm going to spin a story that tells you the meaning of it. And, and it's not going to be evidence-based. It's going to be just story-based and I'm going to break the rules of reality. And you have to believe me. And like the way to make somebody believe them is to be like, and it's destined. And it was always meant to be that way. Yeah. And, you know, there's no more like further evidence of destiny than you were born to these parents who were these powerful figures or you were born to go do this. And right. so I it feel like fantasy strong. plays in, in the same sandbox as religion, you know, and it's like, right. in a way it's, 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 uh, you know, to take well, improv with consequences, it's sort of religion without consequences. But <laughs> then also the doesn't, doesn't fantasy then also, if you are religious, sort of provide a backbone for the thing that you already find important in your life. Like, oh, it's not just this thing that is true, obviously, that guides my life, but even the art that I consume is about the same basic threads of humanity. All right, so Julia, you went ahead and uh, solicited some fan uh, yes. recommendations for fantasy. So how did that go? Yeah, it went great. Um, <laughs> well, we recognize that we are only talking about the tiniest slice of fantasy, and we know that we're not touching everybody's favorite books. So we thought we'd throw it out to the fans. You guys called in, you left some of your favorite recommendations, and we're, we're going to do this reading rainbow style. We're just going to let <laughs> let you talk and take it away, fans. What should we read next? Hey, Disco. Uh, this is Dave. I'm a public librarian in Rhode Island, and I was calling with my fantasy suggestion. Um, I'm going to throw out Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse. Uh, if you're looking for a fantasy uh, book that is not in the medieval Arthurian England Europe mold, uh, this takes place on this continent um, with indigenous myths kind of pulling into uh, the, the fantasy world of a crow god that is being reborn and all of the political machinations in their civilization. Uh, so it's a really fascinating look at a, a different way to write fantasy. Hi, this is Erica Jelinek calling The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. It is campy and ridiculous and just super inventive and inspired and absolutely bonkers fever dream after I got my COVID uh, vaccine. Hey, Disco, this is Michael calling from Canada. A fantasy that everyone should read is The Winged Histories by Sophia Samatar. It's about four women in a place called Alondria, where there's this war going on. It's, um, it's about characters that are people of color. It's super gay. The prose is just so beautifully written, and the love stories in it they'll just tear your heart out in the best possible way. So that's The Winged Histories by Sophia Samatar. Hi, guys. This is Liz. I wanted to recommend uh, The Name of the Wind series, which I'm reading right now. It's a really good book. I think you guys would really enjoy it. It is a first-person narrative, which is interesting. Uh, I think that you guys have a lot to talk about with the main character. Hey, Literary Disco. This is Frances Wong from Grand Rapids, Michigan. For your consideration of a fantasy recommendation is a fake series I'm currently in the middle of, The Queens of Fenburn by Kundari Blake, starting with The Three Dark Crowns. Many reasons why. For one, Asian-American author represent. Two, a woman-led societal structure, which is so good to see as a counterpoint to the more male-driven sexist tones of fantasy writing of yore. And three, the premise is a cross between Harry Potter house structure in terms of being attuned to a certain set of magical gifts, part his mar dark materials in terms of animal familiars and part hunger games in terms of involving sisters that have to fight to the death to claim the throne. This is Dana Lorenz and I'm calling to recommend Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. This fantasy novel is so strange and wonderful taking you into a fantasy world of 
fairies and magic and one of the first recent fantasies that I've read really coming back to the genre that really blew my mind. Uh, I highly recommend it and uh, hope you guys read it even if you don't read it for the episode. My name is Christy and growing up fantasy was one of my favorite genres, Dealing with Dragons by Patricia C. Reed. It's the first and I think the best book in the series and it also stands alone. It has classic fairy tale tropes and main characters, the princess, but the characters are resourceful and clever and curious, and the skills that they learn come back in useful ways throughout the story. There's a mystery element and positive relationship between an assortment of diverse female characters, and overall, it's just charming, and I would recommend it as a gift or as something to read aloud to any early chapter book readers who also love fantasy. My name is Brian Piranesi, which uh, I thought was awesome. Uh, it was inspired by a series of architectural drawings, and it's all about a character who has lost himself in a labyrinth of sorts uh, that's uh, like a series of other dimensions. Uh, it's very cool, um, very original, and it made me want to get into reading contemporary fantasy again in ways that I hadn't before. So I hope that you like my picks, uh, and I really love listening to your show. <laughs> Bye. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and music supervised by Jordan Katz. Justin Alvarez is our producer for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter, at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.